Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Morning, David. I bet you low tide when he has you on the show doesn't say Bruce McCurdy. And I, I bet quite you, like that, no. And I bet you you prefer him not to <laughs> prefer oh, that. <laughs> oh, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all, David. Don't okay. let me down. Bruce. I just think of that Electric Light Orchestra song anytime you say it. <laughs> Great song. Great mm, song. Good band. You think it holds up, though, ELO, Bruce, after all these. Like, there's some some bands, and it may, this is obviously a matter of opinion, but some music you listen to really holds up well, and some music doesn't. And I'm, I might be in the cap, I, the ELO, not so much, but maybe I'm wrong about being, that. Being a bit dated? Yeah, it just sounds like so much of that time, and it doesn't actually sound that good. So that's that's what I say, music doesn't hold up. I was actually a bigger fan of Jeff Lynne's previous group, The Move. <laughs> with, uh, Roy Wood and Bev Bevan, and they were uh, Message from the Country. That was a that was a that was a heck of a band. And, and then they went to the strings and kind of changed their their approach a little bit. That is the great thing about you, Bruce. This is the great thing about you, because <laughs> if ninety percent, like I'm going to say, ninety nine percent of people, if they said which band other than the Yellow of Jeff Lynne do you like? <laughs> Ninety-nine point nine percent of people would say the traveling Wilburys. Traveling Wilburys. You, yeah. you are in. Oh, that I like the traveling Wilburys too. You are you like I didn't even know he was in the move, and but that's that is what that is the 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 enduring uh, uh, interest and fascination that people have with you, Bruce, is opinions like that. I believe. <laughs> All right, today we are going to um, dig in to a couple issues. Should Kevin Lowe be in the hall of fame? By the time this podcast comes out, we might actually have an answer, but we'll, we'll go through the pros and cons of it. So it doesn't really matter what the answer is. Cause, and, uh, we're going to look at uh, the COVID situation, including the Austin Matthews report by Steve Simmons of the Toronto sun. We're going to look at some Oilers prospects. We're going to delve into the latest prospects that we've looked at in our prospect series. Bruce, let's start with Austin Matthews. So, um, I just wanted to, uh, when you first saw Steve Simmons, now he says, so Steve Simmons broke the news that mm-hmm. Austin Matthews has tested positive. And uh, he says the news to that was largely negative from uh, from sports fans. I think like 80-20 negative. And that, and, and interestingly, and I don't know if this, if it's been broken yet, like if TSN and Sportsnet people are have broken down and mentioned this yet themselves mm-hmm. that Austin Matthews has tested positive or if they're just pretending like that news now isn't out there and they still have to say say nothing about it but I, so I don't know if, if it's now being talked about you imagine that I here's one thing I'm sure of every single Toronto Maple Leafs fan has talked about this now on Twitter 100%. so so what, whatever you think of whether it should have been published or not it's now been discussed every single Maple Leafs fan who's a real fan knows this fact and is talking about it on Twitter essentially publishing it themselves in their own way and talking discussing and talking about it but let's just go to your initial reaction what did you think when you first saw the news yourself well I was surprised to see a player named because so many of these reports that have come up you know three anonymous Tampa Bay Lightning you know three anonymous Ottawa Senators and eight anonymous Philadelphia Phillies, and on and on. They're anonymous, or the player or the agent himself comes out and says, I tested positive, I'm in quarantine, I'm doing fine. Uh, You know, uh, it's a personal health issue, and I thought Steve Simmons crossed the line, frankly, um, was my reaction. Mind you, I say that as not a fan of Steve Simmons, who for for him a twenty eighty ratio is probably a good one compared to some of the stuff that he's done, <laughs> some of the crap he wrote about Phil Kessel, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I just thought that was going into uh, releasing personal information about a player. It's not like he's coming out of tomorrow night's game because he's got COVID. No, the training camp is a month away, and he's preparing for training camp, and he had a setback. Well. Does he need some mouthpiece standing up on the tallest mountain shouting, hey, Austin Matthews has got... I don't know. To me, it was kind of tasteless. So I, uh, I It's get... important news. Don't get me wrong. And, and I understand the temptation to break that news. But it's like, a, you know, 
it's it's almost like breaking news on a guy that's entered a substance abuse program or you know it's it's it crosses it's not an injury it crosses the line into the personal space of the player and i think steve lemons simmons crossed the line to go into that space oh yeah this is a really tough issue and um uh for a for if you're in the news business at least it's Mm -hmm. a tough issue and um you know i faced earlier in my career we I, I'm one of the reporters who did the story on Grant Fuhrer's right. um, cocaine habit. Yeah, and, my friend Tom Barrett, our friend Tom yeah, Barrett. Yeah, and, that you know, I've had well. mixed feelings about it. I've had mixed mm-hmm. feelings about it. You know, at the time it was illegal. Uh, it was an illegal, still is. Right. And uh, there was no, it was a, there was no real policies in the NHL. There was all kinds of issues around that. So these are all, so in, so in this case, like I, I understood why people would be upset. On another level, I didn't because when you become a pro athlete, it's just very common. Like every injury you get that keeps you out of the lineup is reported on. Listen, when Connor McDavid had the flu, um, the, the he was going to miss the game. No one knew why he was going to miss the game. And, and John Shannon at TSN just tweeted, oh, well, Connor McDavid has the flu. He's missing the game. No one batted an eyelash at that information. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, well, what's... What's the oh, difference? Lots He's, of eyelashes were batted, actually. Yeah, but, uh, I don't think it was. Per- well, I mean, the, no one, no one batted about, about the reporting of it. Everyone was He's missing no the one, game because he's ill. That's, yeah, I no mean, one, that's no, news. That's tonight's news yeah. when he's missing tonight's game. Well, it's also news in a similar way. Like, listen, this is going to impact Austin Matthews' training. It's a huge. Uh, it's going to impact the best player on your team. Is going to have. It's going to impact his preparation for the playoffs. It changes a lot. Like, I don't see. Like when you're a pro again, when you're a pro athlete. Part of it is you, that whole for you to get sick and for me to get sick, like, no, that doesn't, you know, people aren't buying tickets. People aren't spending right. a lot of money to watch us do anything. So it's different. Like the, the fans want to know they're paying money. They're, they're, they're paying to go see Austin Matthews, the ticket holders. So there's there's that. Now, I, I think the, t- the the ticket holders have clearly spoken, though, or most of them. And they're they're at least their initial reaction, which may be justified or not was like they would prefer Simmons not have reported that. So, so I was trying to think there's nothing different between for me anyway, initially about reporting that Connor McDavid had the flu or Matthews has COVID. I think they both impact their play for Matthews a little further down the road, but it has an impact on his training. So I asked people on Twitter, mm-hmm. why is like, what's the difference? Is there a stigma around COVID? And that, there actually was a pretty good answer to that. Like, is there, a, is there a difference between these two situations? Because I was initially thinking there isn't. Right. But so here's the difference. In this situation, if a player gets COVID, it can look poorly. People were arguing this could look poorly on him. He could be responsible, he and other players, for shutting down the entire NHL season, if enough of these guys do. And they could be blamed by fans, by other players, by anyone they could actually be blamed, seen seen as blamed. And I saw this with Matthews. Someone saying, oh, blah, 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 Matthews didn't take care of himself, got COVID. Kind of an, a negative, hostile reaction to the player, which I think is completely, personally, I think it's over the line. I think it's ridiculous. You, of course, people are going to get COVID. It's a highly infectious. Sick, yeah. It's like people are going to get the cold. People are going to get the flu. Like, get your head out of your butt. People are going to get this disease. So I, I, for me to have, for someone to have that reaction, I think is really a, a terrible thing to say about any player but there is it does put it in a different category than of mcdavid getting the flu people now can blame austin if the whole thing shuts down people could say well it started with austin matthews that layabout you know that careless individual getting covid like people can get this to blame a player for getting it i think is so over the top but it it will happen it's gonna happen it has happened with austin matthews already so for that reason, I can see why you would have a policy right. um, where you would want to keep in this particular situation. Now, as the playoffs go along, let's say, and someone's out of the lineup, yeah, I think well, we're going to have to know. I think that's a different context. Again, yeah, we're going to have to know. But maybe just in this particular time frame where someone, where you know if you report this, mm-hmm. this player is going to get blamed for maybe shutting down the NHL season. That's going to be a, it could be a pretty heavy weight on him. So that's the, to me, that would be the only justification for not publishing that would be a kind of a humanitarian concern for someone getting blamed in an unfair manner for something they shouldn't be blamed for. And I think that's why that there's merit for a news organization to 
hold back this information. Otherwise, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't publish it. Uh, just be no, I don't, and I don't know if the disgust that people felt was because of that. Because I think just the keeping stuff private about injuries and stuff for an athlete, generally, no, not a chance. Mm-hmm. Because we, we, that's typical stuff that's published all the time. When you're an athlete, part of the bargain is you give up some. You're much more public person than than otherwise. And if you don't want to be public like that, maybe don't take the $10 million a year contract. Lots of cut stuff is kept secret about injuries too, you know. Yes, that's fair. But upper body injury out, and concussion are, are, you know, guy has a concussion. Do you always hear about it? Nope. And I mean, the, the thing is the precedent has been set for anonymity of reports. I mean, for all we know, Stephen Stamkos, uh, Braden Point, and Nikita Kucherov are the three guys that tested positive in Tampa Bay. We don't know. It could be, you know, uh, it could be anybody. Um, but it, the fact is it's three members of the Tampa Bay Lightning and they had a setback and had to close their camp. Now, that's news. But they didn't come out and say, well, this guy, this guy, this guy. And that's where I think Steve Simmons crossed the line. And frankly, uh, David, uh, St- uh, Steve Simmons has made... Uh, of quite a number of, uh, I don't know, enemies is the right word. A lot of a lot of readers do not like the guy, and chances are that some of the groundswell is simply because of who it is that was making that report. And uh, he'll make the case, well, he's one of the few that would have the guts to make the report, but uh, the, the appropriateness of it is, is what I'm questioning. Yeah, he's a controversial figure. <laughs> So I guess being a controversial figure myself, Bruce, I have some sympathy for that kind of, I hear uh, you. you know, I, I think you just, I just, go, I don't want to, I'm going to set aside whatever, I don't have any big thoughts about Steve Simmons. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm going to set aside everything that, and just try to look at the actual, like, so I'm assuming that he had this on really solid information. Like, I don't think there's any question about that because, because none has been raised. I don't, uh, in, mm-hmm. in the time after that. So I think that we can, this is solid information, and I don't think he reports this on just the vague rumor. He's a very experienced news person. Whatever else you want to say about him, I don't think he reports this unless he's 100% certain. If he's not 100% certain, that's a firing offense. So, Isn't so, he the I, guy who uh, raised questions about Jose Bautista and uh, uh, PEDs at one point? I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a sort of a... I, I'm not going to get into that close, because I don't think it, I should because I, I, I have no idea. You know, about that. I mean, but wait, you got a track record on that front. And, and uh, yeah, uh, what's his know. track record as a reporter? Because ultimately this news better be solid. And I'm guessing it is. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, so I, I would say that under the circumstances now, if I had if I got information about that, would I publish it? I, I, I guess I would have a long, hard think about not because of the stigma being blamed for um, being just the consequences that could negative consequences, which would be unfair consequences. Um, it's like uh, there's a situation right now with a New York. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into this. It's just a whole other uh, situation where a news organization, the New York Times, has to think about publishing the name of a blogger or not that could have consequences. And I just think you do have to be, as a reporter, you have to be mindful of the unintended consequences. Steve Simmons might not have thought of that particular thing. And because I, I didn't initially think of it uh, as a reason not to publish, but I think it actually might be a valid reason. And I think newspapers have a duty, uh, you know, we, we reporters have a duty to think about these consequences to people about the publication of our work and we got to weigh these things carefully and and um so let's leave that there okay unless you have anything else you uh, no i said my piece kevin Lowe, bruce he's mm. as we speak he's being discussed or his ears are burning yeah. are they talking are they mentioning his name or not i bet you i think someone is i think there's enough buzz around this this year that i think people are mentioning his name what is the case? Okay, what are the three? I just, I, and I want the quick, I want the concise case, Bruce. I want three best arguments that Kevin Lowe should be in the Hall of Fame. Okay. Or even the uh, one. What's the one? What's the uh, top Okay. Uh, that he was a core player on a dynasty team. That he was a key contributor for the duration of that dynasty and even a little beyond the dynasty, he remained a key contributor. Uh, that his um, uh, 
he didn't put up the gaudy stats of the other guys on the dynasty team, so he's a few years in arrear, but the Hall of Fame has a history of 8, 10, 12 years later recognizing players that have some similarities with uh, Kevin Lowe and eventually putting them into the Hall of Fame. And I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised that he's still on the outside looking in, but uh, uh, it, uh, I mean, things have changed. I mean, dynasty teams are, themselves are almost a dinosaur these days in, in terms of what we consider. But uh, he's, uh, uh, I thought he had a, um, a long, provided value for a long, long period of time. And he, uh, uh, you know, he has the the, uh, the durability on his side and, and not so much the peak value, but just sort of the consistent uh, level of performance. And obviously when uh, he played on six different teams that won the Stanley Cup, uh, you know, his, his success uh, is, you know, there's only... Uh, there's only four players since the Oilers got in the NHL, four players that have won six Stanley Cups. And remarkably, three of them were the first three draft picks in the history of the Edmonton Oilers, Kevin Lowe, Mark Messier, and Glenn Anderson. And the fourth was some dude named Brian Trotche. Well, all the other guys are in the Hall of Fame. And part of the reason they're in there is because they won those Cups. And uh, to me, that is, it, there's a strong argument to be made. There's a lot of good candidates. There's a limit of four per year. I'm thinking at this point, it's unlikely he'll get in, but someone needed to make the argument from Edmonton, so I took it on. <laughs> and I, I see I think, uh, Maddie did too, and I think Daniel Nugent Bowman has as well, and, and so there's a little bit of a groundswell. So Jean, the only, it's interesting, eh? Jean-Guy Talbot is not in the NHL Hockey Hall of Fame. Yep. Neither is Claude Provo in his nine Stanley Cups. Okay, so and I there just are. Made the case on uh, Low Tide Show that I'd be voting for Claude Provo this year too. Fascinating, but Dick Duff. So if you look at Kevin Lowe's career statistics, if you just looked mm-hmm. at the number, if you're just an yeah. analytics guy, right? And you're just looking at the, yeah. you're not looking at winning. You're just looking mm-hmm. at the analytics. You, you think yeah. this? There's no way looking no. at these numbers. You know, playoff games played. You could look at that's a number. That's there's a lot of playoff games played there, but if you just looked at the number, there's just no argument that he should be in the Hall of Fame. But if you look at the standard for making the Hockey Hall of Fame, I'm going to argue, Bruce, Kevin Lowe, easily, or he meets that standard. And I'm going to say easily because there are similar players: John Guy Talbot, seven Stanley Cups, very similar player to Kevin Lowe. But you know what? John Guy Talbot also won his Stanley Cups in an era when there was only six teams. Yeah. Kevin Lowe won his Stanley Cups in an era where there were 21 teams. A lot harder for any one team to win the Stanley Cup is when Kevin Lowe won it. The other thing that Kevin Lowe was on, he won, Bruce. The night He was on the team that won the 1984 Canada Cup. Yep. And he was a, a regular player on that team. Mm-hmm. That was a huge, huge moment in Canadian hockey history, the 1984 Canada Cup. We were coming off the 1979 Challenge Cup where we lost to the Russians. We were coming off the 1981 Canada Cup where we lost to the Russians. And again, we were having this terrible insecurity in Canada. The red machine had passed us by. Kevin Lowe was part of that team, very significant team, uh, which Ken Brown immortalized in his great play uh what's it called rink uh, life after hockey i think it's called yes. rink, the yeah. rink rat where he describes the mike bossy goal uh in in dramatic fashion kevin lowe was part of that fantastic hockey team with paul coffee mike bossy and others that beat the russians he was good enough to be one of canada's best six defensemen in a huge and historic mm-hmm. victory over the russians he mm-hmm. want he was good enough to win to be a uh at least the top four D-man, some, you know, sometimes even playing a little high, you know, depending on what you think of a shutdown D-man, what, what their role is, is that top pairing or was is the other pairing top pairing? It's kind of hard to say sometimes. Yeah. He was good enough to beat that on six different Stanley Cup hockey teams. The, the top shutdown D-man probably on all six of those teams, those the top shutdown defensive D-man. By that standard, Bruce, by winning, the most important thing in hockey is winning. The most important thing in hockey is winning the Stanley Cup, being on a team that wins the Stanley Cup. Doesn't mean if you don't do those things, you can't necessarily uh, be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But if you do do those things better than almost anyone else in NHL history, certainly in the very top group of that, 
-hmm. I think there's a case to be made if, if you were a key player. So, you know, just being Doug Jarvis on those teams, not good enough. Doug Jarvis would have never been like on the Montreal Canadiens, key shutdown centerman. He was never good enough to play on a Team Canada. So I would not argue that. But coupled with him being on that 1984 team, I'm saying there's a strong argument for Kevin Lowe to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame as well. And I and I wasn't there. I, I hadn't put my mind to it. I was kind of thinking, oh, you really, because I was looking at this, if you just look at the numbers, I was thinking it. But no, when you look at the standard that the NHL has set for being in the Hockey Hall of Fame, he meets it. Yeah, well, you make a good point about uh, about top pairing, second pairing. To me, uh, uh, most great teams are built around top four defenders, and you have to have uh, two solid pairings, and sometimes they have two different roles. And, and in writing the post, I found uh, a few kind of analogs for Kevin Lowe. None of them perfect, of course, they never are. Uh, <clears throat> but I named uh, uh, Emile Butch Bouchard from... Uh, uh, the Habs of the 50s. I named uh, Tom Johnson from the Habs of the 50s. I named Marcel Pronovo from the Red Wings of the 50s. And I named Alan Stanley from the Leafs of the 60s. Now, all of them distant past, so you could say, well, those Hall of Fame standards have changed since then, and you probably have a point. I'm saying those were dynasty teams, and we're talking again about the rare case of a dynasty team in the expansion era. Whereas you say it's a lot tougher to win the cup year after year with four rounds of playoffs instead of two and having to beat 20 other teams instead of five. Uh, and to, to me, uh, Lowe played a key role on all of those teams. And not, you know, not the, not the gaudy statistical role, but the, the shutdown role. He had a personal rivalry with the top right wing on every other Smythe Division team, be it uh, Stan Smeal, Lanny McDonald, Dave Taylor, Paul McLean, they all had a terrific uh, power forward playing right wing on their first line, and Kevin Lowe went head-to-head -head with those guys night after night in the regular season and the first two rounds of the playoffs, and it was and it was just battle on, battle joined every game. And a saw-off in a battle like that is important, even if you wind up with zero goals, zero assists, you know, yeah, uh, just, just someone that can consistently take on that role and the penalty killing role, of course. Um, that's uh, that's an important player on any team. And if the team team wins, uh, his teammates will recognize that player. And if the team wins six times, as Kevin Lowe did, maybe you know, uh, I mean, it is the Hall of Fame after all. It's not just the Hall of Hockey goodness. It's the Hall of Fame, and the reason why the multiple cup winners, probably the reason why Dan, uh, Marion Hossa will get into the Stanley Cup in front of Daniel Alfredson, for example, is because he won a few cups. You know, yeah. a, a modern-day comparison to fans who don't never saw Kevin Lowe, like, let's imagine, let's imagine that from this day forward, Adam Larson stays with the Oilers. Mm -hmm. he, he plays like he did in February and in 2016-17, which is a really, really good shutdown D-man, mm -hmm. like really good. That's what Adam Larson was in the last two months of this year and his first season at Edmonton. Just excels in that role. And then he's he, he keeps that role for four Stanley Cup wins with the Edmonton Oilers. He's that guy in four Stanley Cup wins with the Edmonton Oilers. Then he goes to another team, and then he's that guy again. Let's say they mm -hmm. win five cups instead of six because it's a little harder to win the cup right now. Right. Then, he, then he's that player again for another, mm -hmm. another season. And then he helps Sweden win the Olympic yeah. gold medal in the same role. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the player we're talking about. To me, that meets the standard that's set. And the only exception to that right now are Jean-Guy Talbot and Kevin Lowe. And um, I think Jean-Guy Talbot was the same defenseman from what I understand. I did never saw him play, but he's that defenseman as well. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you I'm saw a old, I'm a little older than you. I remember Jean-Guy at the end of his career. Uh, with Montreal in 65 and 66 when he won his last yeah. two cups. Of course, he was okay. on a five-in-a-row team as well. And by then, he was kind of a... I'm not sure if he was a fifth defenseman, but I kind of remember him, you know, as not being the uh, uh, one of the main guys, but, an, you know, an important support player all, all, all the same. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what the, what the pecking order was on those five-in-a-row teams of the uh, 1950s, but... Uh, you know, Doug Harvey and Tom Johnson were number one and two. And the Edmonton Oilers, well, obviously Paul Coffey, that's an easy case for him. Who was their number two most important defenseman? I'd say Kevin Lowell. And it's close. I like Charlie Huddy plenty. I like Randy Gregg plenty. 
but I think Kevin Lowe being there from the beginning and being part of that core leadership group and, you know, part of the fiber and, and face of the team is is part of the reason I make the case. No analytics in that. It's just having watched a lot of games and uh, of that team and, and just seeing the general overall contribution to, to uh, the team. And to a lesser extent to the community, which, you know, I don't think that goes into Hall of Fame. It can work against players, as it's currently working against Theo Fleury, I think. But, uh, I, you know, I think uh, uh, he was uh, uh, a positive contributor, no matter how which light you shine on it. Alrighty. Let's hope he makes it. What do you think? You don't think he's going to, eh? Well, twenty. This is twentieth year of eligibility, so that would be pushing the envelope. Mm-hmm. The, the other guys I was talking about, like Alan Stanley, and uh, I think it took him uh, twelve. You twelve said I read, years. Twelve years. I read your post there. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like eight, ten, twelve years for for these guys, and and now we're talking about twenty. So we're talking about ancient memories, and we're also talking about a a long list of other guys that have been overlooked that you can go back and say, well, geez, Curtis Joseph, you know, that guy had a pretty good career. How about Patrick Elias? You know, there's there's cases to be made for a lot of players. I'm just making one for this player. Prospects, Bruce. We're doing mm-hmm. our prospect series. We're, we're counting up from 20 to numero uno, and we are now mm-hmm. in the mid-teens. So mm-hmm. I recently, uh, the one player I looked at was Phil Kemp. Mm-hmm. And the one player who's, which is a, maybe we'll, this is, and then you looked at the two Russians, I think. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about the, those three players. The two Russians are uh, Ilya Konovalov and Maxim Dineshkin. Dineshkin. Uh, I don't speak Dineshkin. Russian, but I'll call him Dineshkin. Okay. <laughs> and um, what do you say about uh so Konovalov's a small goalie who mm-hmm. was lights out with save percentages for years and years and years, which is why he finally got drafted at age 20 and then had a down year. Denishkin's a small, skilled forward who um, just played his last year of junior, kind of a 19-year-old mm-hmm. guy, I guess. Didn't make their world junior team, did he? No. And But had a good scoring year. So what do you think of these two guys? Any chance, Bruce? What if... We haven't had too much luck with Russians, have we, in the Oilers? We, well, yeah, that was kind of the, the preliminary part of my post about the two of them was how terrible the Oilers' draft record has been drafting Russians. You know, they've had, they had, especially in the 90s, the Oilers had some pretty good Russians on the team. Boris Smirnov, uh, Andrei Kovalenko. Uh, they had um, uh, Tony Semenov. He was the one guy that they actually drafted, but he was 27 years old at the time. You know, it wasn't like they drafted some kid and developed him. They, and he played all of 362 NHL games, and that's the best Russian draft choice the Oilers ever had in terms of games played. And in this decade, of course, in, in more recent years, they've had terrible uh, success other than the four guys currently in the system. And of course, we haven't yet got to Kirill Maximov or Dmitry Samarkov, but uh, we've got um, uh, a few in the system. But previous to that, it was like guys that just never showed up or, of course, the famous first overall pick on Nail Yakupov that we talked about uh uh, last podcast or the one before where you wrote a post about him and uh, uh, and his uh, his status as uh, one of the bigger disappointments as a number one overall pick and the orders have just not had a lot of success there but I don't disagree with them keep rolling the dice and, and uh, uh, you know it's it's uh, lots of good Russian players come over and, and made it in the NHL and as the foursome that they have there now, I certainly would not bet against at least one of them turning into an NHLer. But obviously, the guys we have ranked 17 and 18 are less likely to be those guys. Vizhmikin, uh was the name that I, caught my attention on your list. People people don't remember Igor Vizhmikin, but I do. <laughs> he might have been if he had been drafted as a 17 year old, he might have been the first overall pick. Like he probably would have been in the top 10 of his draft year. He was an absolutely brilliant attacking player for uh, the Red Army team and had a great mm-hmm. season as an 18-year-old uh, with Red Army, like just a fantastic season with a, on, a, on, a, on a still still powerhouse team. He just looked like he was going to be the next 
Makarov, Harlamov. Makarov was on that team that Vyazmikin was on. And then I think the story is he started to drink too much, right? Like oh, he yeah. didn't train hard enough. He, he he had a problem with alcohol, if I'm not mistaken. Fact, check me on that. Like I'm not saying that's for sure, but that's my memory of it. And but and the Oilers didn't actually draft him till four years after that great uh, 18-year-old season, and he was never as good again. Really, I don't think never certainly never as promising as when he was an 18-year-old. But man, he set the world on fire with his skill. That was the 1987 draft, and the Oilers were, of course, Stanley Cup champions and President's Trophy champions. So they had the last pick, and it was the last pick in the last round, the 12th round. He went 252nd overall, and he actually made it to the NHL to play four games. So, I mean, in some respects, he beat the odds. But I remember watching those games, and, man, he just hung around the red line. It was gross. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a total cherry picker. Uh, we were funny. joking after those games that he had red paint on the bottom of his skates that they'd have to clean off after the. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, uh, if the if the if the two line pass that's what kept him out at center as opposed to the far blue line, but uh, you know as a player without the puck he was uh, not impressive. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but he was the first 1987. Of course, the, the Iron Curtain had not even come down yet, and they were just starting to release players over to the. Uh, NHL was it Priyakin was yeah. that the first guy that went to Calgary? Yeah. Anyway, that, it was just in that time, but that was the first one. And since then, the Oilers drafted from 1987 to 2019 32 Russians, and you can't say that there's even one of them that sort of really made it. I guess other than they didn't Sanoff. draft Miranov. We traded for Miranov, did we? Traded, yeah. Miranov was part of the Dave Manson trade. Oh, to, that's right. Uh, to uh, Winnipeg. Winnipeg, okay. And they got uh, Matt Lindgren, and they got the draft pick that became Jason Bond Sr. That could have been such a great trade, but uh, as it was, Bobo was a huge player for, for the Oilers for a few years. And, uh, you know, Igor Ulanov, he was another guy that they picked off the scrap heap and, you know, delivered some nice seasons for him. But whatever it is, drafting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's Good a player. few of them, right? Garman, Titov. There's a few guys that were okay players for yeah. Oilers. Just none that they drafted and, and brought along themselves. Konovalov, he could be that guy. Like you say, he had a he's he's had posted great save percentages all the way from you know from junior and to MHL, VHL, and KHL. As a 20 year old rookie, he you know he won just a passel of awards throughout the season. Uh, rookie of the month or goalie of the week or what have you. And he wound up winning the uh, uh, Alexei Cherepanov Award for Rookie of the Year in the, in the Russian League. And and as a 20-year-old, that, that was a nice gamble because he had two-year contracts. So they didn't have to worry about overpacking the system over here with yet another goalie when they already had several. Uh, but his 21-year-old year was a bit of a fallback, and uh, he posted by far the worst stats of any level that he's played at. But to me, like I made the case that Grant Fury's sophomore year in the NHL was uh, was pretty bad. But even at that time, I thought, you know, that's a setback, but it's not like suddenly the guy sucks. It's just, you know, he has something to prove now. But uh, the back, uh, the previous track record, which included a great rookie season in the NHL and great performances as a, as a junior, we knew we had a quality goalie there. And uh, Konovalov, from what we've seen in Russian, he's a quality goalie. The, the, the thing you mentioned is he's small, which certainly goes against the grain of uh, modern goalies, but he's the si size of UC Saros in Nashville, Antti Ranta in uh, Arizona. There are good goalies that are six feet tall. There's just not that many of them. Was, the, was your sophomore year, second year, the year that he said to Edmonton fans, or what did he say? Jerks. Jerks. He's right. He was getting booed, and, uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I, I don't know the nature of some of the comments, but I can guess. And, you know, anyway, he uh, he recovered nicely and became a very popular man in this town. Fantastic. Shutting out the Islanders one nothing in the Stanley Cup Finals will, will gain you brownie points with any fan base. Best goalie of the 1980s, Bruce Grant Fuhr. All right. Um, the guy I looked at was Phil Kemp, and he's a very interesting hockey player. He is he is in the Adam Larson, Kevin Lowe mold of D-man. Mm -hmm. Big, tough, 
leader. Almost every team that he's on, he's the assistant captain or the captain. And that includes a world junior team where he was like the, probably the least skilled player for the United States. And I believe he was the captain uh, two years ago. So he's a, he is this, um, he, he's at Yale and uh, he's third year Yale and he had his best scoring year. So I'd even be more enthusiastic about him, but I, I'm having a little of the old John Marino hangover <sighs> and I'm worried he's going to play four years at Yale and not sign here. Mm-hmm. That said, um, if you want to win the Stanley Cup, if you're a young man of ambition and you want to win a Stanley Cup, um, you might want to come to Edmonton in the next five to ten years, like next five years, which is the window, McDavid, dry settle window. So if he's a really ambitious guy who wants to win in the NHL and has enough confidence to think he can crack what I think is going to be a pretty damn good right side decor, you know, if it's, let's say it's Evan Bouchard and Ethan Bear. Um, lock in there. And then there's Adam Larson. The question is what happens to Larson with the contracts and how does Mm -hmm. this all play out? Does Bouchard pan out? There's Matt Benning still on the right side. Um, Mm -hmm. Is he going to stick around? So there's going to be competition. No doubt about it. Mainly and and players in your age group are Bouchard and Bear. And if those guys pan out, that's, uh, that's a tough two, that's tough two guys to get, get past. But Kemp, I think, I think even though he was a late, taken like 200th overall, something like that, I think Bruce, I have a sense he's going to play in the NHL. And, and, and I'd like, I, and I'm just hoping the owners can get his name on a contract. He was a steal in the seventh round. Like, I couldn't believe it when I heard they drafted the, the captain of the U.S. national development team, which is always a powerhouse at the U18 level. And they got the captain of that team in the seventh round. They're going, how in the hell did that happen? And what I've seen, I mean, he's he's uh, he's a limited player. He's defense uh, uh, defense first and, and, you know, not, not a big offensive player, but apparently he's an extremely strong defensive player. It's uh, highly regarded for, for his character. Uh, our friend uh, Joseph, one of the people we often chat with uh, on at our Cult of Hockey Twitter account, uh, made the comparison to Adam Larson. Right away, I'm going, yeah, that's what, what little I've seen of the guy. That's you know, that's that's the category to put him in. I mean, he could well be a lot of notches below Adam Larson. He went in the seventh round, not fourth overall, like Adam Larson did. But the style of play and the and the um, the uh, uh, you know. He, Big, big, big right shot defenseman that's hard to get around and, you know, wins battles and so on. And, and that's uh, the report. Somewhat little I've seen of the guy playing real games as opposed to the, the Billy Morris Cup. Uh, is uh, that's, uh, that's the style of uh, player that he is. And you can say anything you want about Peter Shirelli, right? He, he mm-hmm. didn't do a very good job overall. But man, Bruce, did he ever stock the right side of the Edmonton Oilers' defense? It's something that had been a nagging problem for about a decade, ever you know, ever mm-hmm. since the Pronger era almost. And he just came in there and he filled those cupboards with really good players, including Marino, who they couldn't mm-hmm. sign. Shrello, if Shrelly had stayed, I bet you they would have signed, been able to sign, so sign Marino. Uh, mm-hmm. Nonetheless, like Kemp is part of that legacy. So good work, Peter Shrelly, in that regard. Like you, he identified a huge problem Gaping on the team wound and he, he <laughs> patched it up sewed it up did some surgery it's perfect good work on that on that count uh just wait there's a i just want to go over there's one comment about camp that i found really encouraging mm-hmm. and you, you know you take it for what it's worth it's i don't know this guy's hockey acumen but stephen pappas of q30 tv who covers the ale hockey um Set of Kemp this year. Kemp is one of the best defensive defensemen in the country and makes it really difficult for opponents to carry the puck by him into the neutral zone. He forces players to dump the puck around him and his outstanding retrieval skills allow him to negate any offense attack by the opposition. Now that was music to my ears because that's a player that speaks to me of a player with, and I haven't seen enough of Kemp to really know this for sure, but of who knows how to position himself, knows mm-hmm. how to get his body moving in the right way in the neutral zone to meet the offensive player, force him to where he should go to dump it in, and then is fast enough to get back there and, and make the good pass out. 
that is that is an NHL defenseman today that you need to have that ability. And if he has that ability, he's got a chance. If that's real, if he can actually do that, and if he's mm-hmm. excuse me, developing into that player, very good news for the Edmonton Oilers. I knew you were going to cite that quote when I read your article. My eyebrows went up on that. And I thought, you know, that's the kind of sort of detailed observation you don't always get in analysis of, of players. And it's also the sort of observation that maybe you need to watch the guy play more than two or three games. You need, you know, you watch him for two, three years. You come away with that that, that kind of sense of the guy. And it's this guy covering Yale obviously saw the guy a lot. And, and uh I mean, we don't know his hockey acumen other than to say that someone who makes a comment of that nature is someone that has a good understanding of the game, in my view. Uh, yeah, I would I would say so, too. I'm just going to look up John Marino's stats. I, I, I think that in Marino's third year, oh. they were quite similar, actually, to uh, to Kemp's uh, third year at, at, in college. And, you know, I didn't see Marino play this year that I can recall. Like, I don't remember him, but... But um, no, I did. yeah, so he has almost exactly the same stats in his third year of of same league. He got 11 points in 33 games, did Marino. And I think Kemp has almost exactly the same numbers. He was okay. Marino's minus three. So Marino had a bit more of a rep, I think, as a puck mover than Kemp has ever had. So we'll see. But I, I'm just, yeah. I, well, I think this well, is a very intriguing player. I hope the order sign him. What happened with Marino was that all of his years there, uh, he was behind... Uh, a right shot offensive dynamo of a defender in Adam Fox, who oh, yeah. made the leap to the NHL this year and had a tremendous rookie season. He could well be in the finals for uh, for the Calder Trophy. Uh, you know, it could be three defensemen. If there is, he's the third one with Quinn Hughes and Kale McCarvey and the other two obvious ones. And uh, there was some good good defenseman in the league. John Marino will be on the short list. Ethan Bear will be on the, you know, the slightly longer list, but you got at least five uh, defensemen that played very significant roles on their team as rookies. And uh, Adam Fox, so, I mean, he has an offensive player. Marino just wouldn't have gotten the offensive opportunities because Fox would have had them all. He put up great numbers in uh, college and he put up great numbers in, as a rookie in the NHL in New York Rangers. Yeah. That's not the game with the same with Kemp. He didn't have a similar kind of player playing ahead of him. So I just don't think that, that, but, but when you brought up Adam Fox, again, it, it caused a little anxiety, wave of anxiety because again, this is another situation where a player, player from that league, from that, you know, these guys are smart guys. They know all mm-hmm. their options. They're mm-hmm. weighing everything and they think, ah, I don't think I want to go to the Calgary Flames. And, oh, they trade me to Carolina. I don't, nah, I want to go to New York. And Adam Fox gets his way and goes to New York. And and so Kemp doesn't have, obviously, the cachet that um, Fox had, but he certainly is in the same situation as Marino. And he, if he doesn't want to mm-hmm. sign here, he ain't signing here. He'll go to whichever team he wants. And maybe Kemp's going to decide, oh, I'll go elsewhere. I want to stay in the United States or whatever. But uh, yeah. we'll see. I wonder if there's even a season. This is what I was also yeah. thinking about Kemp. In the reasonable expectations category, I was thinking – is Yale even going to play this year? Is there going to be, you know, and would that be maybe an impetus for him to say, sign well, this summer. I'm going to sign this summer with the mm-hmm. Oilers um, mm-hmm. and go play in Bakersfield? Because there is going to be some sort of, something's going to be going on in Baker. They have contracts. They got to pay these players. Like, I don't think you can just cancel them because if you cancel the season, would would that cancel the contract? Like, I think there's going to be an AHL, se- AHL season of some sort, put it that way. So for Kemp, he could think, okay, well, I'm going to give up 50, 30, 40, I don't know what his scholarship's worth at Yale, $50,000. Like, it's a significant amount of money. He would be giving that up, and he would be giving up that year of study, but he can always go back to Yale. And this might be, like, he's got to play hockey this year if he wants to be a pro. He clearly wants to be a pro, I believe. Mm-hmm. So um, he's got every chance to make one. So I, it's not out of the question that he'll be in Bakersfield this year. Yeah, well, I mean, the situations change. I mean, John Marino last summer, all the reports were he was going to go back to Harvard and play his fourth year, and that was going to be that. And then uh, <clears throat> once his <clears throat> his situation became clear and the Oilers trained him, all of a sudden they traded him. All of a sudden there he is signing a contract with Pittsburgh right away with, uh, with uh, Phil Kemp. What's changed is not which NHL team owns him, but the whole – framework of hockey you know that 
as you say, could uh, uh, provide some incentive for him to sign a contract and turn pro. The Americans really love their college sports, of course, and will do everything mm-hmm. that they can to make that season go, unlike the U of A, which doesn't seem to love the Golden Bears uh, quite enough. I, I think it's actually really a I'm quite appalled, Bruce. Like if oh, if there was the if there was donors who are willing to step up and fund this team, it sounds like there were. I don't understand what the U of A, U of A did there. I think they don't respect that program enough. They don't mm-hmm. promote that program enough. Mm-hmm. That program is a, the gold standard for hockey programs. They don't do anything. Wow. They do very little in the way of promoting it uh, effectively. And the U of A needs to support that program better. And they should reconsider the, their decision on canceling the Golden Bears season. And if there's going to be other teams playing this year the goal, in that conference, the Golden Bears should be one of them. And I just think, I, I don't know why they did it. I know what, what they're saying. And I think that personally that it's a political thing with the government at this point. Uh, and, and a political thing within the U of A sports community where they don't want to have one program that's special. But it is special. And don't hold that back from these players. If, if they can find a way to make a goal of it, especially with private donors uh, supporting this program through a tough time, that should happen. And they shouldn't be held back from playing. So my take on it. Yeah, I'm very sad by the Golden Bears' uh, short-term demise, at least. It, it just, as you say, it seems premature to chuck the whole season. I, I, I envisioned a season that might not start till you know, second semester. And, you know, be shortened, but I did not anticipate the team just getting pulled out like that. Yeah, I don't think it's right. Like, I just think you you do everything you can to make that happen. And if you can't make it happen for one program, let's say volleyball or even the female pandas team for whatever reason, that doesn't mean necessarily out of a sense of equality that you you can't have this other team that can make a go of it. Like, you shouldn't, that shouldn't be the policy, I don't think. But I, I, I wonder if if it is i think that was mentioned that maybe they could have had the golden bears but they couldn't fund these other ones so they're going to just cancel them all come on like you can do better than that like do everything you can to make one go and then turn your sights on the next one maybe you could get money for both of them the the both of those hockey teams there's lots of support for female hockey in canada i mean i've been involved in girls youth hockey for almost you know for five six seven years now and there's tons of people really supportive of that as well. I can't see why you couldn't get both of them going if you really put your mind to it. That should be the focus of the U of A, not whatever they're doing. So, Alrighty, there's my rant of the day. That's why I'm a controversial character, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> Such is life. Uh, anything else? Uh, Let me just check Twitter to see if there's late breaking news on anything. Well, the Hall of Fame announcement comes out at 2.30 Mountain, uh, so that's a, that's a you know a scheduled presser, so okay. uh, otherwise, uh, uh, I guess that, you know, the overriding news that really, you know, it's, it's news here and there, but the overriding issue is, the, is uh, uh, whether these training camps are going to be able to come off. Uh, come off without a uh, without a hitch with all the COVID issues that have been cropping up in multiple sports and multiple situations. You know, I mean, this Novak Djokovic situation is appalling to borrow your word. And uh, you know, we have a a soccer women's soccer team pulling out of uh, of uh, playoffs in a in a in a, in a restart uh, in um, in America. We have. Uh, on the individual sports, on golfers, you know, different outbreaks and different baseball training camps and such, and it's a, just a scary world out there with the hockey being, uh, um, you know, just one aspect of it. But at a certain point, you wonder if you know society is feasible in the in the intermediate term right now with the with the. the the prevalence of this uh, of this uh, virus. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm an optimist on this score. I've said from the start they will be playing. And Bruce, I turn on the TV and I see the Bundesliga playing. I turn on mm-hmm. the TV and I see the Premier League just one game once a week, unfortunately, uh, mm-hmm. which is another my really bother bugs me. I, would, I want everything <sighs> free, free, TV, free, 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 free Premier League on TV. I miss that. Um, so listen, they're playing. 
and England's got way more COVID than we do. There, there's you can do this. You, you can make this happen. There, it's no surprise at all, none at all, that in this first round of like players are coming in, things are still there's still lots of contact. That there's going to be positive tests expected. Yeah. The key is tightening it up. The, this is a learning process for the NHL. They what they have to do is take this situation with these players, learn from it. And yeah. that's that's expected. Like for people to think it's going to be perfect, like off the top, no. This first round, you're going to get people testing positive. We're going to have more positive tests. The key is learn from it, tighten it up, move on to the next round. And in the next round, it's more of a bubble. There's more of a quarantine. And you have more knowledge. So the and listen, it could be a cautionary tale for the players. Like you really have got to make sure you socialize, isolate, wash your hands, wear a mask if you're going outside to go shopping. They're going to have to, if the play, and you know, that's one, that might be what, one of the things that's learned out of this situation is that uh, there has to be a higher level of care from, from players. I don't know what it is, but it's not unexpected that you would have, that there would be mistakes and you're going to learn from your mistakes. That's the key to this whole thing. The NHL is going to do that, Bruce. And, and again, I can't be 100% sure this is going to happen, but I'm 99.9% sure this is going to happen. They're going to learn from this. They're going to be like the Premier League. They're going to be but like the Bundesliga, and they're going to be able to go ahead and have these games. Well, I certainly hope you're right. <laughs> and I loved – here's the story that I loved. Ryan Graves, mm-hmm. the uh, defenseman for the um, uh, Colorado, Colorado Avalanche. Plus 40? Led the league in plus minus Ryan Graves. I bet that's a stat that escaped a few people. So there was some talk from Kevin Biesk, <laughs> Kevin Bieksa that he was talking to players who aren't that keen about playing. I, I'm wondering who Kevin Bieksa peer group is, other than maybe some older, richer players in California who might not even be in the playoffs. Like I wonder how many how many players are he talking to, like Ryan Graves, Ryan who Kevin. got in his car, I think in pre. Ryan Graves in Prince Edward Island and is driving across the continent as we speak to be safe and to go and actually gas pumps are kind of iffy in terms of being safe. So I hope he's, he's being putting on being washing his hands out for uses the gas pump. Anyway, he's driving across the country from the Maritimes to Colorado to, to get wow. involved in their training camp. That's the level of, I think I like commitment and excitement. I think you're going to have from younger players who mm-hmm. haven't earned their 40th million dollar yet. Aren't mm-hmm. so you know, jaded, jaded by the NHL luxury lifestyle that the older players get. I'm not surprised if there might be a few guys who have made 40, 50, 60 million dollars who are older and who are slightly less keen about this whole thing. But I think most of these players desire to win the Stanley Cup and have a burning desire to win the Stanley Cup. And if if it can be done safely, if they're convinced of that, this is going ahead. And I think it can be done safely. So. All right. Well, as Rod Phillips used to say, time will tell. (laughs) And in the meantime, (laughs) and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Bruce.